next four sermons that I do. So next week, Jolene is going to, Pastor Jolene is going to lead us in our Thanksgiving service. And then for the last three uh, Sundays of um, October, I will be going back to Romans with you on this little journey. So we're going to read from Romans 7, and I'm going to read 14 to the end of the passage. Um, The words are on the screen, or you may follow along in any other way that you want to. Hear God's word. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that works within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. If any of our students ever have the assignment of having to share a tongue twister, you could probably use Romans 7. So we are going into the second section of our fall series on reconciliation, and I entitled it um, The Roman Road. Um, some of you may have may remember the Roman road at one point was a four-step um, conversation you could make with your neighbors about how to teach them about their need for Jesus Christ. Uh, I remember the first one anyways, the first step of the Roman road or the first part of the Roman road was Romans uh, 3 verse 23, and you would use, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And then you move on to grace and, then, and so forth. Now, this isn't that. I'm just pointing out to that one because it always strikes me that when we do those kinds of things, we're taking little chunks of Scripture and using them out of context. And as you've noticed, I always tell you what's going on in the entire passage because I think every passage has its own unique place and we need to understand that part. The funny thing about that Roman road is the second half of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is and all have been made right with God in Jesus Christ. And if you ended there then your customer would go, yeah, see, all's well, because it says so right there in that next part of the verse. So you're almost asking your person not to read the Bible because they're going to find out that the passages you're using say a whole lot of things that don't fit with what you're trying to say. Just my little advertisement for be careful when you're using Scripture to use an entire passage because there's stories in context and they have some messy stuff around them and you at least have to be honest about um, that piece of it. So the title for this first part of the Roman Road of Reconciliation is we are going to go through the book of Romans, looking at passages that help us understand this journey of reconciliation that we are going to learn to practice more and more over the next year, years, however long we need. 
And my title this time is TBH. Anyone know what TBH stands for? Is that a thing? To be honest, okay, it is a thing. I didn't know if I just made that up or not. And full disclosure, which is the same sort of idea. I had someone in my office, someone who I know is not here, so I can tell the story and you don't know who they are anyways. And we're talking, and I'm trying to help them because they came to me for help. And then they said, full disclosure, Pastor Eric. And I said, how about we just stick with full disclosure because it's going to be a lot more useful for you if you tell me what's actually going on in your life so that we can deal with that fully. Right? Maybe you've used that line, full disclosure. And I get it. Don't go on the street and everyone you meet just full disclose everything. But the whole deal of being a Christ follower is that I know so clearly my identity in Christ that I have brothers and sisters, some anyways, with whom I can fully disclose and be honest about who I am and what's going on in my life. That's where we're heading, right? As I have told you before, the overall theme of what we're looking at is having real conversations, honest conversations, and still holding on to people, right? When can we be a people who can say, this is truly who I am, and know that we will be loved and cared for and held on to as we move forward. So, try this line on. You are the biggest obstacle to transformation in your church. You see, that's a quote. Um, you've heard me talk about the stupid book, official title, The Leader's Journey. Um, it was a long time ago, if you don't remember. And that book comes with a whole um, program for pastors, and the way one of my pastor friend colleagues got into a group was the author of that book, Jim Harrington, came up to somebody in the group that she was sitting with, put his hand on their arm and said, I wish I could tell every pastor that you are the biggest obstacle to transformation in your church. And she said, I had to join. She's a bit weird, obviously. She wrote that email and that story to me, and I thought, oh, man, I think I have to join that, too. Now, in case you're all taking this quote and going, you're right, Eric, we always suspected that you were the biggest obstacle to growth in our church. You may read this as a personal one for yourself as well. I am the biggest obstacle to transformation in my life, right? One of the things we like to do is say, you know, if only my parents, if only those people didn't do those things, then... I would move forward. You are, that's the biblical conversation, you are the biggest obstacle to the transformation in your own life. Being a full disclosure, fully honest person is the step, the first step we're looking at towards um, that kind of transformation. All right. All right. The internal struggle. This is one version of this. He says this about five times, as you heard. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. All of us do things knowing full well we shouldn't be doing them or knowing full well when the emotion and the blood rushing in our head stops that we shouldn't have done that thing, and yet we still do them. Job one is quite simply admitting that this happens in your life and admitting it, no offense, dear, but a little more specifically than Ruthann did in public with all of you right? Because this is a public place. She wasn't supposed to give you all the details, right? Find, have a place where you can actually say, this is one of the things that I do that I know I shouldn't do, but I still do it, right? 
And hopefully, I trust, we're going to be for each other. Those kind of people who hear that and say, awesome that you shared that. Let's move forward on that together. Right? That's the internal struggle. Now, there's three debates that I want to share with you in this passage to help you understand it. And then, early this morning when I was going over this and preparing for this or finalizing this, this sermon, I finally figured out what I was really supposed to say, so that'll come at the end. So if you're at home, you can push pause and just pick us up in about 10 minutes, and I'll be on the really important thing. The rest of you, you've got to listen to this, because all the questions for the small groups are based on this other material. And the really good part, you're just going to like it, because it's actually the really good part. It just kind of flapped me. Oops, I can't hit that side. Just like flapped me in the face and made me aware of what I'm supposed to be saying today. These are good, too. For when, so the first debate is, was Paul writing as about his pre-Christian life, his pre-conversion life as we would call it, or his Christian life, his post-conversion life, right? Because it's hard to tell. If, if he's still struggling so much, maybe he, he's talking about, no, that's what it used to be. And chapter 7 is all this struggle, and then next week we're going to look at, or two weeks we're going to look at chapter 8, because chapter 8 is the power of the Spirit and the beauty of living in the Spirit and all that kind of glorious stuff. So maybe the debate is, he was actually here talking about his pre-following Christ, and chapter 8 is about his already following Christ life. Or the other debate is, no, all of us struggle with these kinds of things. I lean to the second. So, side A is, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. This is earlier in the passage. It seems here that Paul's talking about his pre-Christ-following life. And then the B part of this, but now, now that I've come to know Christ, by dying to what was once bound us, we have become, or we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, verse 5, that's my pre-following Christ life. Verse 6, that's my post-following life Christ. And the suggestion is, um, this passage, chapter 7, is his pre-life, and 8 is his post-life. You may debate that one if you want to. I lean towards this is all in his Christian life. Debate two. Can we blame the law? He seems to be talking about that in here. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? I don't know I'm speeding until I, unless I'm really speeding. I don't know I'm speeding until I see the sign and go, oh, it's a 50 zone. I thought it was an 80. Right? Or the lights come on behind me. That also gives it away. Right? The law sometimes tells you what you're doing wrong. So what we could say is, and Paul almost says that, well, if we just didn't have any laws, we wouldn't be breaking them, right? I'm looking forward to that day when there are no speed limits. It's the Autobahn everywhere because I can decide for myself how fast to drive. And you're all going, Lord, help us. Let's not have it that way, right? Especially for me. So the law doesn't make us sinful. The second part of that helps us understand that. To be, sin actually uses the commandments. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good. Sin always takes something good and twists it. That's what the serpent did already in Genesis 3, to bring out my death, so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful, right? I was already speeding. I was already driving dangerously at the previous time, but when I became aware of that, the fullness of that starts to come out, is what Paul wants us to fully understand there. And then debate three. One side of it is, are we rotten to the core? For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. And you see, I left the, um, the C in there, because there's a footnote. 
And the footnote says that those words that we have as sinful nature is actually flesh. Right? Which for most of us in our common parlance is not at all helpful because when we talk about our flesh, we think of our physical body. Right? And the last thing we want to teach is that your physical body is evil. Get rid of it or beat it down so that you can just have a spiritual body. We don't teach that. Your challenges are body and soul and spirit all together. You are a human being with all those things together. So why do they use sinful nature? Because sinful nature might make us think, I am created. My nature was created sinful. And we don't want to say that either because repeatedly in Genesis 1, the creation story, it is good, it is good, it is good. And the sixth day when we were created, it is very good. So how do we understand that word flesh? The Greek is sarx, in case that helps you. I know it doesn't. The word really means in your base animal instinct. If you simply follow your instincts, like an animal, if we put food in front of you, you will eat it. If we put an opportunity in front of you, you will take it. To be human, to be image bearers of God, is actually to know what your limits are, just as God knew what his limits are. I understand some of you are listening to Bema. This is Bema. I think it's two, three, and four, right at the beginning there, where they talk about how that dynamic works. There's a whole lot more information there. I just wanted to give you that nutshell piece on it. Our sinfulness, our sinful nature is when we simply follow our instincts, our desires, and don't remember that we are created in the image of a God who knew when to stop creating, and he knew when enough was enough and rested. All right? So are we rotten to the core is the first side of this, or do we know this? For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Right? So Paul in this passage is continually saying, I do things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. I have all this horrible stuff living inside of me, and yet I also delight in God's law. Which is it? And really the answer in all three of these debates is yes and both. I think that's the heart of the matter of understanding this passage. We need to actually feel what Paul is saying here. This struggle between going, I've committed myself to Christ. I want to do what is good. I know what is good. And yet I'm still struggling with these things. What in the world is going on? And step one really is being able to say that specifically in a safe context about your own life. Because if you can't be real about who you actually are, it's kind of hard to move to whatever that next step might be. And so I call it expressed existential angst. What a wretched man I am, says Paul. And of course, if you're female, you may say, what a wretched female I am, or woman I am, right? Don't have to keep that quote. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Again, the step of moving forward is naming that reality and being able to hang on to that reality um, honestly and in ourselves. Then I also want to point out this part. After we've said, boy, I struggle... We have this gate to eight, and by eight I mean chapter eight. Thanks be to God. This is the very next verse, right after, oh, am I ever struggling. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a way out. But the way out isn't truly, fully, deeply understood until we are also firmly aware of what the challenge is and honest about what's going on for us. So I would summarize it this way. That we have humble, heartfelt, honesty that guides from guilt to grace and growth humble heartfelt honesty is that ability to say this is who i really am this is what i struggle with this is my real reality this is what goes on in my head that you don't get to hear about 
And when we start there, that starts to guide us from guilt to grace to growth. Um, there's a, a group of us from this congregation meeting, and um, we're doing a bit of a process of coming up with our, um, our guiding principles. And when we start that journey, we're starting with what are the guiding principles that we've received, right? And there's a whole bunch of things that your parents taught you that you just simply pick up and you live out of them. And some of them you go, that doesn't make any sense anymore. I'm not doing that. And other ones you go, man, that's brilliant. I'm glad my parents gave me that. I'm going to hang on to it, right? When we're honest about what we struggle with, it's about being able to share, as we did in that group, these are my guiding principles, and these are the areas I struggle because sometimes that is my guiding principle. I think this is so important. I think prayer is really important. I really struggle to pray, right? That kind of a thing. It starts with that humble, heartfelt honesty, and then the rest of the journey we've just started together will guide us from guilt to grace to growth. So, this is the really good part of the next slide. I thought about all this, and I thought, how do you tie all this messy stuff that Paul's doing here together in a way that's actually practical that we can use? And then this came to me. So this, this is basically a, a teaching model or an understanding of, of, of um, growth model that I got from Mike Breen, if someone needs credit. I'm pretty sure he got it from somewhere else. I'm sure this is reasonably common structure. So let, let me start with a, a, an example of it. So I can come along and someone can say to me, I can say, what's that? And they can say, that's a miter saw. I am now, um, I'm unconscious of my unawareness of what in the world a miter saw is and what it does, okay? I still don't know, and please don't teach me. I don't want to know, right? So I'll just give you an example. So I didn't even know there was a miter saw. I definitely don't know how to use a miter saw. But by bumping into it and having someone tell me that's a miter saw, I now know, oh, Shoot, now I'm aware that I don't know something. And I have two options. My option, as I told you, is that's nice. But if I was going to be a woodworker, I might need to know what a miter saw is, assuming it's used for woodworking. Now I want to say, can you teach me how to use that miter saw? And as I first try and do it, I'm probably going to mess it up. Now I am conscious of how little I know about miter saws, but I'm starting to work with it. And eventually, once I become a famous tradesperson like, for example, Frank Veldman. You're welcome, Frank. I can probably use one without even thinking about it, right? I pick it up, work with it, do whatever it's supposed to do without even thinking about it because I've done this so long, it's just part of who I am, right? Now let's talk about the struggle with our reality and our sin. Before you understood the law, Right? When I was just freely driving along the highway or the road at 80 when it was actually a 50 zone, I was unconscious of my immorality. I was unaware that I was sinning. Actually, these are the big words. Let me give you the small words. That's way easier. I didn't know I was doing wrong because I was unaware. Once I see the speed limit, once I know the sign, I now know what I'm doing wrong. Right? And again, I have choices. Now that I know I'm doing wrong, am I going to slow down? Or am I going to go, yeah, I was doing wrong before, I'm doing wrong now, that's the way it is. The next stage is, once that I know that there's something wrong, I have to learn, can I learn how to do that right? Can I slow down? Can I change my driving habits? Can I adjust the way I live so that it's in line with what I'm actually meant to be doing? And hopefully, because this is a Christian goal, the Christian goal isn't that you need to come here every week so that I can tell you what you're supposed to do so you go, oh, I'm not supposed to speak. Oh, I'm supposed to be nice to people. Hopefully, 
many of us get to or are at that point where we love people because it, it just comes out of us. Because we've been practicing this Jesus thing so often and dealing with our own junk so often that we know, yep, yeah, I know my gut reaction used to be that I would dislike this person because they're different from me. Now, when I see somebody who's other, I think, I need to walk towards them. I need to find out who they are. I need to draw them in. I need to be willing to have this conversation with them about even our differences because I know I'm loved by Christ and I know they're loved by Christ. So there must be a way that we can get along. Right? When your children are young and someone gives them something, you as a parent say, say thank you. Right? And the first time you do that, what do they do? They look at you what are you talking about? Because they've never been, they didn't know they are supposed to say thank you. They were unconscious of what they are supposed to do. And after a while, they regularly, when you say, what do you say? They go, thank you. Either or not, they say thank you, right? They're now conscious of what they're supposed to do and learning to do it. Then, of course, hopefully, eventually, there's this real natural process in your life where as, as a person you say, someone gives you something, you go, oh, thank you. And after a while, you... You want, did I say thank you? It's so natural to you. It's so part of who you are that you say thank you without even having to think about it. That's the growth curve. So this whole messy passage of Paul struggling back and forth, is he on this side or is he on that side? I want to suggest to you, he's all of these things because all of us in different areas of our life are either unconscious of what we're doing wrong or unconsciously doing the right thing or somewhere in between. And this journey that we're on with Paul, is about going, you know what, there's still all kinds of areas where the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the horrible things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. We're going to process those. We're going to be honest about those. We're going to move forward on those and trust that step by step, at least slowly, we're going to become people who do more and more things unconsciously right. Jesus followers. The Bible isn't a book I wanted you to know how rotten you are so that you can just simply trust in Jesus and he'll get you into heaven. It is that, but it's way more. It's a book that says, here's a man who lived in this world, Jesus, who lived in this world in the most incredibly perfect way. And he can teach you, as you trust in him, how to live that way too. We want to grow in our unconscious ability to do the gracious thing God calls us to do. Let's go on that journey together. Amen. Jesus, as we walk this journey following you, we pray that you would continue to make us aware, give us spaces to be free and honest about where we struggle, but that you would also give us good, safe guides and teachers, that you give us your spirit to help us take steps in faith, to be much more naturally heartfelt, honestly open people who live where you call us to live. Give us truth and freedom and love in all of those areas, we pray in your holy name. Amen.